This is not a sermon, and it's not a homily, and it's not a lecture, and I don't know what it is. It's the first of three talks or explorations I'm going to give here on a certain mystery. It has something to do with the sea. Let's start by something very personal. What is the sea to me? If I had one word, I would say magic. No matter how tired I am, the sight and sound and smell and touch and taste of the sea always wake me up. I become instantly alert, awake, aware, alive, aroused. You will all go right to your travel agents and make a uh, vacation plan to the east or west coast after this talk. Uh, The sea gives me the energy of a four-year-old and the happiness of a four-year-old. After an hour of smiling at her and not realizing that I've been smiling, my face feels funny because I don't smile that much. When I notice that, I feel funny. I know of nothing else that does that to me. So where does the magic come from? Well, of course, all of nature is full of magic. Star stuff becoming a planet. A seed becoming a tree. Primordial slime evolving into rational, sophisticated slime. (laughs) But that magic takes time. This magic is instantaneous. My soul obeys the sea's magic wand as instantly as the universe obeyed the creator's word, be. I wonder if these little bangs in my soul are echoes of his big bang. As soon as I see waves... Unless I stop myself, I run madly into them and whack them with the loving embrace of a baby elephant. And when I splash in them, I feel like a kitten rooting in her mother's nipples. When I'm by the sea, I notice that I'm breathing more deeply. I notice more. I notice how the air feels because I notice the sea air. I notice all the colors because I notice the color of the sea today. Every day she's a little different. I notice all smells because I notice how she smells today. Even that difference is subtler but detectable. So the sea does to me what a good lover does. A good lover gives you more energy to love everything. That's what God does. A bad lover drains away your energy into himself like a vampire. A good lover is like a fountain. A bad lover is like a whirlpool. So the sea is a good lover to me. Maybe I'm strange, but I'm not alone. Half of humanity shares my love affair with the sea. It's as old as the Viking poem, The Seafarer. My spirit within me drives me seaward to sail the deep, to ride the long swell of the salt sea wave. Never a day but my heart's desire would launch me forth. The same love is as modern as John Macefield. I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. All right, that's the data. Here's the puzzle that emerges from the data. Why does the image of God feel such passion for cold salt water? Why do immortal spirits created only a little lower than the angels fall so desperately in love with a trillion trillion tons of H2O laced with NACL? The books don't tell you that. I know, I haunt bookstores. The books about the sea are full of external data. For instance, they tell you what causes storms. But they don't tell you what causes our fascination with storms. They tell you how the wind raises waves, but they don't tell you how and why the waves without raise waves of wonder within. 
is the gravity that draws our soul to the sea in us or is it in the sea? What's the link between the matter without and the spirit within? Between salt water and love? Is there seawater in our souls? Or is there soul in seawater? Or is that question a wrong one? One that could only be asked by a modern mind that has separated reality into mere matter without and mere spirit within. The mentality of the scientific method. Carl Sandburg writes, the sea hugs and will not let go. Notice the grammar. She's the subject and we're the object rather than vice versa. How can the sea be active and the human spirit passive under her spell? We act upon the sea with our ships, but she acts upon our souls with her waves. We conquer her physically, she conquers us spiritually. How does she come to have such a power? When she hugs us, what are her arms? The mystery of the sea is only the most obvious example of the mystery of all nature. For not only the sea, but all of nature contains a great mystery. The mystery is simply this. Why does it fascinate us? Why does it feel inexhaustible to our spirit? Our spirit is infinite. It's finite. Why does nature make us happy as no art does? Why is a stick and a stone better than a bat and a ball? Why is a forest of trees better than a forest of telephone poles? a very hard question to answer. No practical answer works. We deliberately turn trees into telephone poles or hills of rock into hills of office buildings, yet we love the raw material more than the things we make out of it. So why do we make them? Something in us prefers cities, it must, since we choose to build them and live in them, but something else in us prefers nature. And we all know that that something else is the older and wiser and happier thing. What happiness sap flows through trees and waves? The poet Dylan Thomas writes, The force that through the green fuse drives the flower drives my red blood. What force is that? Obviously, it has something to do with God. Obviously, nature makes us happier than civilization because God made it. Poems are made by fools like me. Only God can make a tree. But what power, what spiritual electricity, what strong magic did the creator put into his creation? If we ever find the answer to that question, I think we will find it first in the sea. Because there we find the most magic of all. But how do we find it? I think we have to use a method that we've forgotten which I call the art of third eye seamanship. This ancient art could be called the art of sign reading. Nature is not just a thing, but a sign. It's like a word. And therefore, it's not just to be looked at, but also looked along. You look along a sign, not just at it. You read the sign. But modern books about the sea always look at it instead of along it. So they miss its significance, its signing. They never learn the sign language, which is nature's language. When they see a tree waving in the wind, for instance, they never think the tree is waving at them. It's only being moved at random by air molecules. They think nature isn't signing, but spastic. They're like unsocialized children who can't read body language. 
But nature's full of words, and it's written by God. God wrote two books, nature and the Bible. We should read both. This habit of sniffing at facts and missing signs typifies our whole modern culture. It's the mind of a dog. When I point to his food, my dog always sniffs at my hand. <laughs> We're like that. We've been doggedly sniffing at nature. Sniffing at the sea, experimenting with it, calculating solutions to scientific puzzles about it, conquering it both mentally and technologically, figuring out how to reverse our pollution of it, all perfectly good things to do, but all the while neglecting the ancient and honorable art of sign reading because we've forgotten that we have three eyes. We have not just the outer eye of the face or the eye of the brain and the mind, but we have the eye of the heart, the third eye. The eye of the heart is the eye of love. When we open our third eye, we see that the sea is a sacred sign, a Jacob's ladder linking earth to heavenly forces, a highway for angels ascending and descending. Or you could call it a kiss. The sea gives us a fleeting kiss, an appetizer of the big kiss that God will give us in heaven. That's why it teases and ravishes us. It's foreplay. It's a lover's whisperings. And what does it whisper? It says, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. But you have to be silent to hear that whisper. The whole sea is a sermon. Each wave is a word. The whole sea is a symphony. Each wave is a note. Waves aren't meant to capture the sea's mystery any more than they're meant to capture the similar mystery of music. I think my question about the riddle of the sea has to be asked, but I think it's not supposed to be answered. I think it's supposed to go on and on like the waves. I think God must be like that. And so are our hearts. And so is the sea. Three inexhaustibles. No surfer in human history has ever been heard to say the following words. Now I've had enough waves. No saint has ever been known to say, now I've had enough God. Well, here's an example of third eye seamanship. Uh, it's a familiar idea that creation reveals the creator as art reveals the artist. The application of this principle to water, however, is not a familiar idea. We find it only in a very few writers. One of them is George MacDonald. He writes, every fact in nature is a revelation of God. It is such as it is because God is such as he is. The water that dances and sings and slakes the thirst. This lovely thing itself, whose very wetness is a delight to every inch of the human body in its embrace. This live thing, which, if I might, I would have running through my room, yea, babbling along my table. This water is in its own self, its own truth, and is therein a truth of God. Let him who would know the love of the maker become sorely athirst. And drink of the brook by the way, and then lift up his head, not at that moment to the maker of oxygen and hydrogen, but to the inventor and mediator of thirst and water. And then the man will foresee a little of what his soul will find in God. A man like MacDonald knows water only because he's in love with water. Love gives him his third eye. I think the closest I ever came to opening my third eye was when I was very young, too young to remember how old I was. I think I heard what the sea was saying. I 
read the riddle, cracked the code, understood the secret language. The language was music. It was angel music, I think. No, it was not human music. Only the child in us can hear that music. It's too deep to register on the adult ear, which scans only for the shriller levels of sound, like a dog whistle. Who played the music? It must be angels. I think just one angel would suffice. Maybe the angel who fell into the sea when God created it, or who fell in love with the sea. Well, then why doesn't God let all of us hear this angel music all the time if it's so beautiful? Maybe he does, but we don't hear it because we let worldly wax grow in our soul's ears. Or maybe not. Maybe it's not our folly, but God's wisdom and mercy that insulates us from the angel's music. Maybe God puts cotton in our ears because such great beauty would drive us mad. The sea almost does already. Maybe if we heard those cosmic chords so tremendous and remote, perpetually shaking the skies and making him that sitteth in the heavens to laugh, we would be unable to eat or sleep or reproduce or survive. Maybe it would be an unbearable weight of glory that would crush our spirit like a dancing elephant crushing a bug. A fire that would enrapture and burn up our mind as a flame burns a moth. Maybe we just disappear. Maybe the only way for us to survive in this angel-haunted universe is to be partially deaf and dumb. A few of us can make this music into Brandenburg concertos or choral symphonies. But none of us can lay hands on this music any more than we can lay hands on a hurricane. It lays its hands on us. It plays on our organs. Tolkien, too, thought our discontent had something to do with the angel music in the sea. In his beautiful creation poem, in the Silmarillion, he writes, It is said by the elves that in water there lives yet the echo of the music of the Ainur, the angels, more than in any other substance in this earth. And many of the children of the Creator hearken still unsated to the voices of the sea and know not for what they listen. Well, for what do we listen? What secret do we hope to find? What does the sea signify? Let's do sign reading. A thing as great as the sea must signify something great. Like a work of art. Like the Mona Lisa. If the Mona Lisa is no more than a million molecules of paint, it signifies nothing. Well, the tree, sea is much more than a trillion trillion tons of water. It's like the Mona Lisa in three ways. It's a great work of art. It's a face, a personality. And it's mysterious. What is the secret behind that smile? Clue number one, in every language in the world, the sea is a woman. Water and air are lovers. The winds endlessly caress the sea's hair, and the sea, in response, stirs and purrs and smiles. It was the spirit, the wind, that blew over the face of the waters at the very beginning of creation. Genesis 1, verse 2. Their love affair formed the world and continues to form it as a man's and a woman's love form a child and continue to form it. In all languages, the word sea is feminine. She was the womb of all life on earth. She was the mother of the moon, her firstborn daughter, torn from her Pacific womb when she was young and hot. These two, mother, sea, and daughter, moon, still wave the baton and set the tempo for the life music played by the body of every woman on earth. A woman's periods do not just match those of the moon and the tides. They are those of the moon and the tides. 
Human life's maternal cycle is monthly. Monthly. The tide charts of a woman's inner sea of blood are the same as the tide charts of the Earth's moon-moved outer seas of water. Earth's seas overflow once a month, too, when sea and moon are aligned. And the sea is both regular and irregular, like a woman. Both she's are regularly irregular, predictably unpredictable. Always a woman to me. Listen to Billy Joel's song. I think it's an ugly insult if addressed to a girl, but it's beautiful praise if addressed to the sea. The poets knew this. Swinburne writes, I will go back to the great sweet mother, mother and lover of men, the sea, born without sister, born without mother, set free my soul as thy soul is free. I think you can tell whether a man loves or fears women by asking him why the sea is a woman. Some will say it is because she is treacherous. Others will say it is because she is beautiful and mysteriously wise. A second clue. The sea has something to do with time. It's a time machine. It turns clocks back. We babble like children or mystics when we contemplate her. We say with the poet, the sea, the sea, the open sea, the blue, the fresh, the ever free. Do you remember the very first time you ever heard the sound of the sea or your very first sight of it? You never, never saw anything so big before. And you never will until you die. When we're at the shore, we know who we are. Little children playing with sandcastles. Sir Isaac Newton, probably one of the two or three most spectacularly intelligent human beings who have ever lived, said shortly before his death, quote, to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. I know of no better image than that to summarize man's place in the cosmos, little children playing in the waves. Waves of life, waves of energy, waves of evolution, waves of predestination, waves of providence, waves of God stuff, the stuff God is made of, beauty, truth, and goodness. Little children know what the beach is for. It's a big sandbox, a toy box full of toys. Look what children always do in the surf. They go wild happy playing in the skirts of the great big mommy. They're much wiser than adults are, for they know what the whole universe is for. It's a big toy. It's for delight. That's why any great artist creates. It's the image of God. What did you think God is, an engineer or a lawyer? He's an artist, stupid, open your eyes. <laughs> but when we become adults, we lose the knowledge that the universe is God's toy to play in. And we lose the sense of being small and happy. Instead, we become large and worried. The surf can make us all children again in two seconds, if only we let it. Do you have any idea what a revolution, what a transformation it would be if everyone on earth played in the surf one day a week? How much depression and suicide, how much hatred and violence and resentment and envy and boredom and addiction, how many wars and murders and plots and tyrannies would just go out like a candle? The sea is really a fountain of youth. When you run into her great mammalian arms, you become baby again. Mommy's arms cradle you, rock you, wash you. The dirt of dreariness is washed away, and you find underneath the dirt a surprisingly baby-like skin. Nothing else can be as mommy as the sea. Nothing else can make us feel so baby as that mommy can, no matter how old we get. And the sea is the perfect toy. It's unbreakable and unlosable 
It's always available, always alive. It plays with you without ever getting tired or worn out. Dances with you, wrestles with you, and boxes with you, and tosses you around. It's just dangerous enough to be exciting, and you never have to put it away when you finish playing with it. <laughs> Another clue. The inexactness of the sea makes us happy. Nature's lines are not geometrical. The shape of a wave is unpredictable. Why does that make us happy? Perhaps because we can't understand it. We know that everything has a reason, and we know that we don't know all the reasons. Only God does. So nature does for us what Socrates did for the Greeks. Teaches us our ignorance. Teaches us that we are not God or nature, but humanity. We are not daddy or mommy, but baby. If baby understood everything in the house as well as mommy or daddy did, baby wouldn't be baby. And baby wouldn't be happy. We're happy when we know, as baby knows, that somebody else is in control. If baby had daddy's power, baby couldn't be happy. Maybe that's why technology doesn't make us deeply happy. In order to be successful at it, we have to narrow our focus, and that narrows our happiness. When we tame nature, we blind ourselves to something in her that we can't tame and don't want to. And it's that something that makes us so deeply happy. We're much more deeply happy in the presence of untamed nature, like the sea or a forest, than we are in the presence of tamed nature, like a saltwater aquarium or a mowed lawn. Machines are good things, and they're natural to us. After all, our own hands are tools. But they're less deep and less real and less alive than we are. And when we become more like them, we make our good servants into our bad masters. And I think we're doing that by giving our machines two precious things that we designed them to give us, time and power. Everyone knows it's worked the other way. We have less and less time the more technological time-saving devices we have. And we feel more impotent, more harried and hassled than our pre-technological ancestors. So our slaves have turned us into their slaves. Well, the sea is an antidote. The sea is totally non-technological. The poet says, roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll. Ten thousand fleets sweep over thee in vain. Or as the psalmist says, arise, O God, and let not man prevail. We don't really enjoy prevailing. And time, the sea gives us time when we give time to it. It's like those loaves and fishes that that little boy gave to Jesus. They were multiplied. The same happens with our time. And our power. It gives us more power and control over our lives only if we first give up trying to control our lives and just sit there quietly. Sit for an hour and just watch waves once a week. When you do that, you emerge stronger because you've left your obsession with strength back on the land. The sea's power of spiritual healing is known to every age. This doctor is always in her office and always sees patients and always heals. What happens when I go to the sea is that it seems that the sea becomes God's tongue and he assures me, though not in words, that he's still in charge. That there's beauty forever beyond the reach of man's folly and selfishness. Because we can chip away all the rocks. We can't chip away the sea. Whatever happens to humanity, to society, to history, the sea remains. Civilization fell into a dark age. 
and is falling again, but the sea remains. Her waves do not descend into a dark age. Society repeatedly falls into violence and decadence. The sea always remains innocent and pure. Her waves do not fall into decadence. When our world becomes brave new world, the sea does not follow it. So as we slouch closer to brave new world, the sea becomes more important than ever before. She's the great, great antidote to the poison that Solzhenitsyn called hastiness and superficiality. Modern life tends to be trivial and shallow. She is serious and deep. We produce more and more noise pollution. She gives us holy silence. Kierkegaard says, if I could prescribe only one remedy for all the ills of the modern world, I would prescribe silence. For even if the word of God were spoken in our world, it could not be heard. There is too much noise. Therefore, create silence. The sea helps you to create silence. Here exactly is how the sea heals me in four steps. First, the sea teaches me to listen to it. Then by listening to it, I learn to listen. Then by learning to listen, I learn to listen to God. And finally, by learning to listen to God, I learn to listen to others. To the sea-like depths in others' hearts. To the God-like depths in their souls. But I don't hear that unless I become silent inside. Especially God's voice, which is larger than the universe, but also softer than a whisper. A still, small voice, far more awesome and fearsome than a hurricane. Elijah found that out. Elijah came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and broke them in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. The voice is terrifying because it's the voice of truth. You can't argue with it any more than you can argue with the sea. We have filled our world with needless noise that has not made us happy. Why? Precisely to avoid hearing this voice. That explains why the Celtic monks of the Middle Ages fled the sweet, green, cultivated Irish countryside for the wildest, fiercest places they could possibly find, the barren, craggy, wave-lashed rocks in the sea, because they heard God there, because their souls woke up there to feel the vertical life surging through them, the pillar of fire from heaven. That rather mystical reason even explains economics. I think that pillar of fire is the deepest reason why waterfront property increases so spectacularly in price. Because we know deep down what those Celts knew. That we're going godlessly insane unless we let something like the sea help keep us godly sane. And there's much more reason today for this love of the sea because our souls are getting older and deader. Saintless, heroless, passionless, poetless, petty, flabby, self-indulgent. How can such a soul see itself as the point of the great drama of evolution? From amoeba to slug to snake to monkey to man and back again to the soul of a monkey, snake, slug or amoeba in a man's body. I think that's the deepest reason for alcoholism and drug addiction and sex addiction. Deep down we know our souls need something good but wild. Something dangerous. Something that makes us feel alive. Those destructive addictions are all substitutes for God. But the sea is an icon of God. 
It's the last untamed place on earth, howling with holy wildness. Storms are the most exciting of all the sea's charms, but also the most destructive. Why do we find them so charming? It's not that we love destruction, but that we love self-knowledge. We love the tumultuous waves because we are tumultuous waves. We love surf because we're full of surf. We seek our spiritual siblings, our kin. And when that happens, we know that we fit. We know that we're part of the same cosmic order as the sea. Carl Sandburg must have sensed something like that when he wrote, The sea is never still. It pounds on the shore, restless as a young heart, hunting. The sea speaks, and only the stormy heart knows what it says. The sea is not evil. It's fearsome and dangerous, like Aslan, not a tame lion. And so are we. Its dark side attracts us, not because we long for destruction. It's good people who love the sea when she's angry. They don't love human anger. Why do they love the sea's anger? I think it's not our pride and arrogance, but our humility and piety that are fascinated with storms. We love the tumultuous sea because we know we need humility. And she supplies our need. Man has become so big and nature so small, so emptied of mystery by our science, of danger by our technology, of poetry and myth by our rationalism, that we no longer feel ourselves confronted by something that we're even tempted to make into a goddess, like our ancestors did. What a loss. I say, if you're not even tempted to worship the sun, you don't know the sun. It's to you just a large, efficient radiator. I don't mean to be impious here. I firmly believe the Ten Commandments, especially the one against idolatry. But what would you say if you met someone who didn't need the commandments, not because he was holy, but because he was never tempted? For instance, a healthy young man who was never even tempted to lust. I pity them. Where's the glory of overcoming temptation if there's no temptation? I say the ancients were closer to the truth when they saw the sea as a goddess than we are when we see it as a chemical. But the sea not only gives us this excitement, it also gives us peace. Paradoxically, the same sea that restores our inner passion also restores our inner peace, just like God. The wild thing is also the calm thing. She gives us a peace that the land can't give, a passionate peace. And a passion the land can't give, a peaceful passion, just like God. The sea is a peacemaker. How could surfers be soldiers? How could anyone drenched with the wisdom of play water ever think up this brilliant idea? Hey, it seems we got some problems. I got an idea. Let's deal with them this way. Let's all dress up in funny uniforms and go out and kill each other. Sea is wiser than that. Paradoxically, I think we see the sea as an icon of God, as something that shows us something supernatural, precisely because it is so natural. Because all of nature is a miracle. In fact, the primary miracle. And the sea is the closest part of nature to the whole of nature, the biggest thing. So it's the most miraculous thing we see. Here's a simple proof that nature is a miracle. A thing caused by God and not by nature is a miracle. But nature is caused by God and not by nature. Therefore, nature is a miracle. What do you see about God in nature? Not everything, but something. 
The almost infinite sea is a mirror of infinity. The sea is the goal and purpose of all the water on earth, every brook and river, and it's also the goal of the moving water of our hearts. Our spirit water follows its love gravity to the end. And the sea is alive like God. It doesn't just contain life like a glass aquarium. It's alive like an animal. It breathes. A wave is a hand reaching out to grab you or to caress you. And like God, she's always the same yet ever new. Eternal yet dynamic. She changes not, yet she is the living one. And like God, she's vast and deep and mysterious and formless, yet full of personality. Infinite yet with a face. Fearful and wonderful. And of course, wild. If you don't know that God is a wild man, you don't know God. The sea is also godlike by being the absolute. Land is relative to the sea, not vice versa. The sea is not a little puddle. The land is a little island. The ancients were right. The earth is flat, spiritually, and even physically. Uh, death is the edge. And even in terms of space, the land has an edge. You can fall off the earth into the infinite abyss. The abyss is the sea. The sea is also godlike by being self-effacing. It lets you just sit there and watch it or ignore it. Only occasionally does it shout, here I am, in storms. It's a perpetual presence, always itself, so big and heavy that it is the measure of the weight of all other things. The omnipresent background to your life. When you live by the ocean, you always have an unpredictable 500-pound grandmother in your backyard. Moses, in Genesis, used her as a symbol for all matter. That cosmic stuff that God's spirit blew on and formed in the creation story. Why did Moses call that water? If you watch the stormy sea pacing in its cage like a tiger, you'll know. As you watch, you will enter a time machine. You will watch the drama of creation. I think when God designed Earth's oceans, he painted a picture of his spirit breathing his timeless passion out onto the heavy seas of time on the first day of creation. And then he hung this picture in his nursery, that's the Earth, for his children to see once they would be born. But, last question, what is it a picture of? We haven't yet read the sign. We've just said that we should read it. Well, it's music, and music can't be translated into words. It can only be heard. But the composer of this music has to be God. That's the answer to the riddle of why it never gets boring. Our souls are so big that only something bigger than them doesn't bore them. But nature is smaller than the human soul. How come we're so fascinated with nature? Because nature isn't just nature. It's God's nature. Compare water music with the best man-made music. Take your, your favorite piece of music. After a few dozen repetitions, it gets boring. In contrast, God's water music is extremely simple, and yet it never gets boring. Why? What message is it saying? What is it that we know never, ever gets boring. It must be something very simple and very huge, something unarguable, something irresistibly beautiful, something very much like God. Well, I know what it is. 
I'll tell you, it's very, very simple. Here is what the waves are saying. I love you, 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 till the end of time. So let's respond to that love by prayer. Lord God, you have said to us in nature, and you have said to us even more clearly in sending your son, simply, I love you. Help us to echo that and say to you till the end of time, I love you. And help everything in our lives and everything in nature to be your instrument in leading us to that. In Jesus' name, amen.